If you would, open with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. The last chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50. <clears throat> We're going to start at the end of a rather lengthy story and then uh, work our way back through it and, and back to the end. Um, but we've been talking for the last several weeks about people who have been called. And we've been kind of walking through some of the story of the Bible uh, to look at some of those divine callings. We looked at Adam and Eve. We've looked at Noah. We looked at Abraham last week. And Abraham had a really interesting call. Uh, Abraham's call was in a world that had been divided by Babel to be chosen to be the one through whose family would ultimately bring about blessing to the whole world. The world had had blessing, but had also had an awful lot of curse. And uh, God was, through Abraham, going to bring blessing back to all the nations of the earth. And so you start looking through how he's going to do that, and it's a really confusing story because just about everything you would expect to happen, the opposite happens. Uh, but though it's unexpected and though there was a lot of doubt and confusion and it wasn't always able to, to see the end from the beginning— Abraham did eventually have a son named Isaac, and this is the one through whom the blessing would come. Isaac then uh, was married, and Isaac had uh, sons. Uh, he had Jacob and Esau. And again, in those stories, you end up seeing what you expect to happen reversed. For example, Jacob and Esau were, uh, were twins, and Esau was the firstborn. Ordinarily, the firstborn son is going to be the one through whom the, the blessing goes. But not only was Esau not the firstborn, he was also kind of swindled. Uh, like, you would expect, you know, in God's story, the more righteous, good, holy, honest, pure person is the one who God would choose to work through. Um, and that's not to say Esau was a great guy. He made some bad decisions along the way. But Jacob, his brother, was kind of deceptive uh, and worked together, conniving uh, together with his mother to steal the blessing from his father for himself rather than for his brother. He... he his brother was, uh, was hungry after a, a long day out, and uh, he said, I'll give you some food if you sell me your birthright. And then later he uh, goes to his father, and he, he was, who's like blind, and he takes advantage of his father's blindness, uh, putting some, some fur on his arm so that he's hairier like his brother, and he ends up stealing the blessing from his brother. And then he has to flee for his life because his brother's going to kill him, and you think, Oh, what a wonderful, perfect family of God. Like, like, you read through the story and you realize the people that God's working through and the families that God is working with are messed up. If you ever look at your family and you think, people are kind of messed up. Hey, take, take some comfort in knowing that God tends to work through messed up families. Uh, and Genesis is, is a very clear depiction of that. But lest you think things will get better and will end on a nice, happy note, uh, Jacob ends up having a bunch of sons. He, he actually takes a couple of wives, and uh, the wives were sisters. You had Rachel and you had Leah, and he loved Rachel, didn't love Leah. But he could have babies with Leah, not with Rachel. So that's a wonderful setup for a nice, happy family. Um, what ends up happening is every time Leah has a baby, Rachel gets really jealous and upset. And Leah, like, every time she has a kid, she names it something like, maybe my husband will love me now. And, uh, and, and so eventually R Rachel gets jealous that she gives her, her servant to her husband and says, hey, have a child with me through her. And so he does that. And then Leah's like, well, I'll do the same thing. And so he ends up having uh, children with Leah and then with both of the servants of, uh, of Rachel and Leah. And then finally, and this is uh, something that's a very big surprise, 
he does end up having a child with Rachel. Uh, I say it's a surprise. We're told that Rachel is, is barren, and that's why she's unable to have kids. If you read, I think every woman in the Bible who's barren has a kid, uh, just about. I, there, there might be an exception here or there, but it happens over and over again. So if, if you're reading the Bible and it says uh, that someone is barren, there's about to be a baby. Uh, and, uh, and so that ends up happening with Rachel and Leah. But Jacob's firstborn son from his favorite wife, Rachel, his name is Joseph. And Joseph enters the story. And uh, you know how like when you have kids, you're not supposed to show favoritism? You know, it it's, it's, makes the household a whole lot better if you don't like, all right, favorite son, least favorite son. That's just not going to help things out at all. Uh, and the kids tend to notice that type of stuff. Well, uh, apparently Jacob had never heard that because uh, he had a favorite son and everyone knew it. And he demonstrated very clear and special favoritism towards uh, his son, Joseph, just like he did for his wife, Rachel. Like he, he uh, wasn't great at trying to, to give equal love or, you know, the same amount of love for everyone. That didn't even seem to be a goal that he had. And it caused a lot of conflict in his household. Um, you know, that's, uh, I, I used to teach uh, Genesis to, to seventh graders. And that's something that's like, if you ask a room full of seventh graders, uh, do your parents have a favorite kid? Every one of them says yes. Uh, and every once in a while you get the kid who's like, it's me. But for the most part, it's usually one of their siblings. And they're never happy about it. Um, and so that's what you have going on in, um, in uh, the, the life of Joseph. Um, well, Joseph's life is, is a wild story. Uh, the last like 15 chapters, roughly, of Genesis detail the events of his life. And it's a really fun story to read. I encourage you to go home and, and to read through it. There's, there's a lot of interesting details in there. There's a lot of twists and turns. But it ends in chapter 50, which is what I just asked you to, to turn to. And uh, Joseph is with his brothers. And his father, Jacob, uh, whose name was changed to Israel, uh, has died. So these are the sons of Israel. And they're gathered together, and they're about to have a conversation. <clears throat> We're going to start reading through this conversation, and then we'll go back to fill in the gaps to help us understand what they're talking about as we go through this conversation. But in uh, Genesis chapter 50 and verse 12, uh, actually skip forward to verse 15. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for the wrong which we did to him? Okay, so here we're reading about a wrong that Joseph's brothers did to him. Remember, Joseph is the favorite son, and he has these 11 brothers, and they all wronged him in some way. So what is that? Well, this is where you hit rewind, and you start going back to how the story begins. Uh, we've been talking about people's calling, right? Joseph, at the beginning of the story, is about 17 years old. He's wearing a very special coat. Uh, it's a coat his father got to him. There's, it's traditionally called a coat of many colors, um, it's actually a difficult Hebrew phrase to translate, so we don't really know what exactly was special about the coat. Some have tried to translate it like a, a mini-ornamented coat or something like that. Something special and unique about this coat. Perhaps it's the type of coat that you may give to a firstborn son, and he gives it to his 11th-born son. Um, there, the Septuagint translation, which is the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew that a lot of early Christians read, it actually says a long-sleeved coat, like a coat with long sleeves on it. Um, and so there's something special about this coat, and, and we're not exactly certain what it is. But he's wearing the coat, 
And uh, he had previously gone out and uh, reported about when his brothers were out working in the field, he would go see them working, he'd give a report back to his dad. One of the first things we're told is that he gave unfavorable reports, he gave a bad report. Um, so, you know, it's not, I'm not saying it's a good phrase or a good thing, but have you ever heard the phrase, of snitches get stitches? Um, that's kind of what you have going on with Joseph, where he's telling uh, things about his brothers that uh, doesn't reflect very well on them. And so that's not going to endear him to them, especially as he does so in his father's, you know, coat that was specially made for him. Um, it's very obvious that there's some favoritism. But things get a little bit worse uh, from that point forward. We know that his brothers hate him. The text says that. And then a couple of things happen where it says, and they hated him even more because of this. The first thing is he has a dream that he tells them about. It's the type of dream that if you have it, you should probably keep to yourself. But uh, he has a dream where he and his brothers are out uh, making uh, uh, these sheaves and they're making these bundles. And after he makes his, his brothers all get up and bow down to his. Hmm. Hey, guess what I just dreamed about, guys? Uh, you know, while the, the, the young guys and the teenagers wearing his coat, it's just not a story you want to hear. And his brothers get upset about it. Then he has another dream, and he tells his brothers and his father about it. And this is a dream where um, 11 stars and uh, the, the sun and the moon, they bow down to him, like his brothers and his mom and dad are. Like his, his whole family is bowing down to him. And he tells them about it, and his dad is not thrilled about this dream, but he also, he keeps it in his heart. It's something that he wants to remember, because there might be something significant about it. As we'll see, there actually is something significant about it. When we're talking about the call of Joseph, Joseph's call, it might be a couple of things. You know, you could see a couple instances where he might be trying to figure out what his life purpose is, but it seems that those dreams have a special role in it. He's going to, in some way, be someone great. He's going to, in some way, be a great ruler. And we don't know how. We don't know when. We don't know what the exact nature of it's going to look like. But something's going to happen with Joseph where uh, apparently he will be a great ruler. Well, his brothers don't love it. Uh, he is sent out again to go give a report about his brothers. And this time as he's going out, they see that dreamer walking towards them. And uh, they come up with a plan as to what they're going to do. Uh, the first plan is not very nice. Uh, none of them are. But the first one is just like, let's just kill him and throw him in a ditch and then go bring that coat back to his father covered in blood and tell him he, he got killed. Um, so that was their first plan. So they're that level of angry at him. Uh, Reuben decides he doesn't think that's a good plan. So he says, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in the pit. And his plan would be to come back and to rescue him later. He doesn't like him. Reuben's not okay with the murder. So he uh, tells his brothers, just throw him in the pit, and then, uh, and then privately he decides he'd come back and save him later. So the brothers do that. They throw him in a pit, and as he's shouting from the pit, they're enjoying their lunch. And uh, then <laughs> this traveling band of Ishmaelites or Midianites, uh, the word, both words are used to describe them, uh, probably reference to the same uh, people. But uh, it is interesting, the Ishmaelites, you know, you could go back a couple generations to see uh, kind of where they're coming from. But they're traveling through, and they say, you know, we don't really benefit from him being thrown into a pit. Let's do something that'll actually, you know, bless the family. Uh, let's do something that'll actually, uh, you know, have some reward for it. So they sell him as a slave. They take him out of the pit, and they sell him as a slave, and he gets carried off to Egypt. 
And so Joseph's gone now. And they do dip his coat in blood. Reuben uh, is not thrilled when he comes back and finds out that this happened. But they take it to their father and they say, is this, is this the coat? Like they don't know. And the dad uh, immediately recognizes the coat and he immediately recognizes uh, what's happened to his son. He thinks he's been uh, torn to shreds by an animal or something. And uh, so he goes into mourning. The family wants to comfort him, but he says, no, I'm going to mourn until the day that I die because I've lost my son. And uh, so that's, that's where we leave that family. Joseph, supposed to be the great ruler, ends up in a pit. You have to wonder while he's in that pit, reflecting upon his life, this doesn't sound like the story of someone who's going to be a great ruler. Um, not only that, after he's in that pit, he is taken from it and he's sold into slavery. While he is traveling to Egypt, while he's finding out what his future is going to be, it seems a little bit like his calling has veered off course. You could imagine him thinking, if I'm supposed to be something great, how in the world is that going to happen now that my brothers have stepped in and they've ruined God's plans? They've stepped in and they've ruined what I was doing with my life. I, you know, I, if you were to ask 17-year-old Joseph, uh, where do you see yourself in five years? I don't think he's going to tell you the story that happens. As, as we plan our futures and we think that, about what we are supposed to do, very often it's hard for us to see what that is. But I imagine if you asked Joseph, he would not say, well, I'm supposed to end up in a pit or I'm supposed to end up as a slave in Egypt. He probably had much different and great. He probably had a, a smoother path from being in his father's household to being some great ruler. But now it looks like the plans have been thrown off. By the way, I think that same thing can happen in our lives. I think as we do think about our future and we do plan for what we want to be or how God could use us or, or what our calling might be in life, we tend to not only think of what that could be, we think of a nice, smooth way to get there. And when the tragedy strikes or when the unexpected turmoil enters our lives or when we find ourselves uh, the person that we thought we were going to grow old with has died or when we find ourselves uh, living in a place we never thought possible or we have a job and we're planning our futures and we think it's going to go this direction and we end up losing that job, all of a sudden it's like we could very easily look at ourselves and feel like the, the plan has been thwarted. The the journey that I was on, I've, I've taken a wrong turn. I don't know what to do now. Like, and we, we believe that it has to go a certain way in order for God to use us. I wonder what kind of doubts Joseph had as he was tied up traveling as a slave to Egypt. I wonder what kind of doubts he had when he first ended up in the house of Potiphar and uh, as a slave there. But what's fascinating about Joseph is he doesn't give up in those confusing and difficult times. Uh, no matter where he finds himself, he ends up doing quite well there, whether it's at his father's household or whether it's as a slave in Egypt. In fact, he does so well at Potiphar's house that he does become ruler-ish. <laughs> he ends up being elevated uh, to be a ruling slave. Uh, and so he ends up number two in the household. Uh, he actually says uh, when he's uh, there, he talks about that, uh, you know, Potiphar's not even more important in this house than me, and nothing is decided in this house without my say-so. Like, he has given him that much respect and trust. Potiphar doesn't have to worry about his house at all, because he knows that it's going to be in perfect condition, well taken care of, everyone provided for, everything is going to be done right. He can trust Joseph to do all of that. There was a condition, though. The condition was, leave my wife alone. I mean, that's a pretty reasonable condition. Uh, you, can, you can be in my house, but don't mess around with my wife. And Joseph understands that, and Joseph's not going to do that. However, uh, Potiphar's wife 
appears to have had other plans. And, you know, historically, um, there is a reason to think Potiphar might have been a eunuch. Uh, there might be some, some background to the story that makes uh, this uh, kind of difficult uh, on her and, and I guess maybe a little bit more reasonable. Um, but she keeps wanting to have relations with Joseph. And Joseph is saying it would be wrong. It would be immoral. He has blessed me so much. How could I sin and do this great wickedness against God? Which is fascinating. Uh, he's in... Like, he's a slave in Egypt, and he's still thinking about the God back in Canaan. Uh, and, and he's still thinking not just about, you know, it would be wrong to do this because it would be unfair to Potiphar. Or it would be wrong to do this because I could die if people find out. Instead, what he says is it would be wrong to do this because of God. He has a view of God that no matter where he is, God is there also. Well, Potiphar's wife's not thrilled with that. Through a series of events, she ends up, in essence, framing him, and he goes away to prison. And he's in prison now. So he's been in a pit, he's been in uh, slavery, uh, and he is now a slave in prison. Not what you would expect for the story of someone who's going to become a great ruler. He's there for years. Like, this isn't like a quick little misunderstanding and he's out next week. He spends years of his life in misery in prison. Um, while he's there, you have to wonder, is he thinking, my, my calling has been forgotten? Is he thinking that, uh, that you know, the, the, charter, the charter for my life has, has, has veered off course? Like, God had these plans for me, but because of my brothers and because of Potiphar's wife, because of these wicked people and because of all this unfortunate stuff in my life, now my story's over. Now it's wrong. Now I'm just a worthless slave in a prison. Well, I could see thinking that. Uh, I could see going that direction. But what Joseph does instead is he makes the best of that situation. He keeps working and serving, and he ends up becoming kind of a ruler again. Uh, apparently, he gets elevated to being someone who is, though a prisoner, he kind of runs and is in charge of the other prisoners there. He is a prisoner who has prisoners underneath him, and he is uh, put in charge of, of taking care of them and put in charge of, uh, of making sure that things run smoothly there. Like, he's that trusted that he's a prisoner put in charge of other prisoners. And during his stay, two prisoners come to him. One is a cupbearer, and the other one is uh, a baker. And uh, they have dreams, kind of like Joseph had a dream. They have dreams. And uh, they're trying to find some interpretation of them. And Joseph recognizes the only one who could interpret dreams is God. So tell them to me and I'll see what I can find out. And so they tell them to him and uh, this, this very opposite dreams. Uh, one of them has a dream about uh, basically it's like a vine and it, uh, he takes the grapes from the vine, he puts it in the cup's drink and he hands it to the, to the Pharaoh, or he puts it in the Pharaoh's drink and he hands it to the Pharaoh. And he comes to find out that uh, in three days, you're going to be restored to your position serving Pharaoh as, as a cupbearer. Um, the other guy's like, oh, wonderful. Let me tell you my dream. And uh, he was the baker. And his dream, not a good dream. Uh, his dream is in three days, the king is going to remove your head from you. Uh, so sorry. Um, so that's what happens with the two dreams. And sure enough, three days later, the men are separated. Uh, Joseph uh, knows that one of them is taken to go be killed. The other one is taken to go be with Pharaoh. But he tells that cupbearer, <clears throat> as you're going to Pharaoh, remember me. Remember that I'm here. Don't forget about what happened here today. And the guy says, fine, I'll see you later, and goes off and completely forgets about him. And he stays in there for several more years. You have to wonder, <laughs> is this my life now? 
Like, is, is this, is, maybe the dreams that I had was about me ruling as a prisoner in a prison? It's not really a great, uh, it's not as, quite as grand as I imagined it would be. But you have to wonder what, what doubts are entering into his mind as tragedy strikes and as new obstacles arise. Well, eventually it just so happens years later that Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh's really disturbed by it. And he needs someone to interpret this dream for him. And uh, the cupbearer then remembers what happened to him in prison. And he says, there actually was a Hebrew who I met one time, and he could do this type of thing. And so Pharaoh calls for the Hebrew, for, for Joseph, and he tells him uh, two dreams that he had. <clears throat> one of them is about uh, seven really nice, plump, healthy-looking cattle, uh, then like seven really ugly, weak cattle come along and eat them. What does that mean? Uh, then the other one is about seven really good, uh, like strong, healthy, plump-looking ears of corn, and then seven really weak, ugly ones come and devour them. And uh, he has these two dreams. He's thinking, what are these dreams about? And Joseph is able to give him an interpretation that's actually really, really helpful for saving the whole country. Apparently, there's going to be seven years of really good, plentiful harvest. Seven years of plenty. Seven years of really good stuff. Uh, be smart during that time. Don't just get fat during that time. Don't just, uh, uh, you know, indulge and eat everything you can. Save it. Because there's going to be seven more years that come along and eat all of that. Seven ugly years. Seven years of drought and famine. So prepare. And so that's exactly what they do. They begin preparing. Uh, they store everything up. They have uh, enough stored away to get them through those seven difficult years. And after those seven rough years, guess what happens? or seven wonderful years, uh, what happens are the seven rough years and the seven years of drought and famine. And the drought and famine hits everywhere. In fact, it even hits Joseph's household, where he came from, where his father and where his brothers are, where his father's still mourning and where his brothers uh, have, uh, have uh, gone back to live their lives after selling him into slavery. And they realize, hey, we don't have anything to eat. The only place that's prosperous is Egypt. And so they make their trip to Egypt and... There's a lot more detail to this story that we're not going to get into for the moment, but basically they end up being reunited with Joseph. Um, they don't recognize him at first. Why would they recognize him? They haven't seen him in years. He's been in prison. He's been a slave. They, they're not expecting him to be well-dressed in the finest jewelry and all that stuff in Pharaoh's household, but that's exactly how they find him. Because Pharaoh, to reward him for his interpretation of the dream and to reward him for saving uh, Egypt, makes him a great ruler. He went from his father's household to a pit, to a slavery, to a prison, to being forgotten about in prison, to being one of the highest rulers in all of Egypt. Uh, that's the type of, you know, rags to riches story that, uh, that so many stories are based on. But that's what you see happening with him. You see his life in the most unexpected and unpredictable ways possible end up being used to bring about what God had purposed. And so... They are reunited. The whole family moves down to Egypt, including uh, Jacob, the father. But eventually, after some blessings and some farewells, Jacob dies, and we get back to Genesis 50. The brothers are concerned. Now that our father has died, and Joseph is like the greatest ruler in the world, um, what's he going to do to us? We didn't, we didn't actually treat him very well. Is he going to, uh, to take this out on us? Is he, is he finally going to get his revenge now, now that dad is not, no longer around? So here's what they decide to do in verse 16. They sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, uh, Thus you shall say to Joseph, 
Please forgive, I beg, the transgression of your brothers and their sin for what they did wrong. Uh, And now please forgive uh, the transgression of the servants of God, of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So here's what they say. They're like, look, he has every right in the world to take vengeance on us. Let's tell him dad said not to. And so they go there and uh, like they lie, basically, uh, or at least there's no indication of him having said this prior. And he said quite a few things to them. Uh, They say, he's going to get vengeance on us. Let's tell him that dad said not to and be sure and forgive your brothers. And so they go and they tell him. And when Joseph hears it, he begins to weep. And then verse 18, then his brothers came and they fell down before him and said, wait a minute, that kind of sounds familiar. His brothers coming and falling down before him. If you remember those dreams that Joseph had way back at the beginning of the story, we're starting to see them actually come to fruition right now as he is a ruler and his brothers are falling down before them. And Joseph has to decide what he's going to do. Is he going to reap vengeance on them or is he going to forgive? Well, verse 19, Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Apparently vengeance is something that belongs to God. And that's a message that Joseph knows, and it's a message we should probably remember. Uh, it's not our job to go and get vengeance and to get back at people. If, if vengeance needs to happen, trust the one who's perfect at wrath and vengeance. That's God. He's the one who can handle those situations way better than we can. Uh, so he recognizes that vengeance belongs to God, and so that he'll leave that to God. But here's something else he recognizes in verse 20, and we'll close with this note. He says, as for you... You meant evil against me. They did. They, they hated him. They wanted him dead. They wanted him in a pit to starve to death. They wanted to make money. They sent him off as a slavery. Like, they hated him. And they meant evil against him. Then he says in verse 20, But God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He forgives his brothers. He tells them not to be afraid because he recognizes something. You know, there are times in our lives, I think, that we believe we have a mission, a purpose, a goal, something we're striving towards, and so often that thing can get thrown off course. Uh, I wonder what was going on when Joseph was in some of those terrible situations. Was he having those dark nights of the soul where he was questioning and confused and begging God for answers? We don't, we don't know. We get a picture of, of pretty resilient faithfulness throughout, but did he ever have those moments? I don't know if he did, but I know I do, and I bet a lot of us do. I bet we have anxiety, and I bet we have a lot of worry about uh, what our lives will become, especially when they're not going the way that we predicted or thought or hoped or prayed that they should. But here Joseph, looking back on his life, realizes something. What would have happened if his brothers had not sold him into slavery? Like, they meant something evil about it, and it was miserable for him. But recognize that it was essential to a greater story that he was a part of. What would have happened had he not ended up in prison? If his brothers didn't send him into slavery, he never would have uh, ended up working in Potiphar's house. If he didn't work in Potiphar's house, he wouldn't have ended up in prison. If he wasn't in prison, he wouldn't have interpreted the dreams. If he hadn't interpreted the dreams, Pharaoh never would have heard that he could interpret the dreams. And so all of a sudden, like all of these pieces, they start fitting together to form a story where each part is dependent upon what preceded it in order for what follows it to take place. And it ends up leading to him being one of the great rulers in Egypt and saving many lives. 
Apparently, God knew about this drought many years beforehand and started putting things into motion, even through the sinful actions of his brothers, to ultimately bring about salvation to many, many people. And ultimately, to bring about a reconciled and renewed family, to bring about uh, healing for people who would have otherwise been in misery and in death during the seven years of drought. God saved them through the unpredictable, unexpected story of Joseph. That tells me something. It tells me that even when I'm not able to predict my plans, even when uh, I'm unable to bring my hopes and wishes about, even when I find myself in times of confusion or in times of despair, that might itself be part of God's call. God's call isn't always something clear and smooth and predictable. Sometimes even when you're suffering or grieving, sometimes even when you are trying to figure out which future, sometimes the depths of despair are what God can use to bring about what he wants for you or for his purposes. Um, life isn't always going to be easy. Our calling isn't always going to be clear. The path to, uh, to, uh, to God isn't always something that, uh, that we'll see smoothly and you know, easily. But God could use even the rocky stuff to bring about his purposes. And Genesis ends with that note. Because, by the way, that's important to know if you're going to follow the rest of the story of Israel. Uh, they're about to get into some rocky stuff when you start Exodus. Uh, they're about to get into some really difficult things. And you need to know that God works through those. He does not abandon Joseph when Joseph is a slave or in prison. He's continuing to work through those situations. So have hope. Have trust that even when it's not what you would have thought or predicted, God can still use you. If there's anyone here who would like to begin a journey, an unexpected, wild, thrilling, and very rewarding journey with God through faith, through baptism. We pray that you would let that be known. Uh, we would love to be able to talk with you, study with you. If there's anyone here uh, who would like to, um, to con uh, ask for the prayers of the church, you can come to the front row or you can talk to one of our elders in the back. But if you have a need, please let it be known while we stand and as we sing.